Good morning. It's good to see you here. Thankfully, it's not that terribly cold yet, though I believe it's going to get colder this week. So I look forward to seeing you all next week as God's frozen people. Um, as you came in, you will have gotten this little piece of paper, which is an outline of where we're going, uh, just to give you something to sort of hang your hat on as I go through the talk. Uh, we will be... It's such a big passage, I'm going to have to leave bits out. And I apologise for that up front. Some of you will think, oh, he's left out the best bits. So be it, uh, that's where we are. But last week, Steve took us through the first part of John's, called the prologue. And this, this beginning of John's gospel is just so wonderful. Uh, we're transported from the very beginning of all things. He starts, in the beginning was the word. And there was the word of God, who was with God and he was God. It's this, this cosmic vision that, that, that John paints for us. An amazing start to an extraordinary gospel. And as I read this week, somebody said, the prologue is the lens through which the whole gospel can, can be viewed. Because what he does in the rest of the book he, is he walks the lofty heights of where we start through to God becoming flesh and walking amongst us. And what all of that walking amongst us looks like, full of grace and truth. But it also brings us firmly down to earth because this word does walk amongst us. He took on flesh. The eternal God, the word, became incarnate. The light that was the light of life walked amongst us. And as we saw last week, he can be and he was rejected. But he came so, but he came so that if we believe, we can be children of God. And so in some ways, verse 12, which will appear up on the screen, is sort of a topic sentence. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. It's the theme of this whole next section of John. As we see, who will believe? And the overall purpose of John is laid out for us at the very end of John's Gospel in chapter 20. And as we go through John, you'll probably get a little bit sort of you'll you get this reminded of you, to you over and over again where he says this, these are written, these things are written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's what John's writing to do. So what happens when this word of life walks amongst us? When the word becomes flesh and speaks and acts and meets people, well, we see these first encounters in our passage today. And the first one is John the Baptist. You'll find it really helpful to have your Bibles open. We're going through, I'll, I'll uh, be reading from the Bible. It'd be great for you to have your Bibles open at John chapter 1, the second half. Follow along with what's going on. There came a man named John. Now, the other gospel stories, Matthew, Mark, Luke, introduce him as Jesus' cousin. Um, introduce him as Jesus' cousin, but as John, John just has him sort of appear. All of a sudden, he's in the story. We don't get a backstory. He's just out there preaching. Verse 15, 
John testified concerning him. He cried out, saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me, because he was before me. Or verse 19. Now this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. So you see, John comes testifying. He's talking about someone else. He's pointing somewhere else to the one who comes after him. That is, John is not about himself. He's waiting. He's preaching. He's baptising. He's calling Israel to repentance. And then along comes Jesus and meets John. And John, you can always do it. I mean, John's this really out there character wearing, you know, camel hair and he's got a belt and there's, he eats wild honey and locusts. He, he's, he's a bit of an out there sort of guy. Uh, and John, you can almost imagine he's got that sort of slightly crazy look in his eye, right? And he looks at Jesus. He fixes him with this piercing gaze and says, look, the old versions used to say, behold, look. Verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said a man comes after me and surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptising with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. So John sees Jesus and recognises him. Not recognises, oh, you're Jesus of Nazareth, but he recognises him as the one that he's talking about, the one that he's waiting for, as the Lamb of God. Now, that term, Lamb of God, is just a little bit complicated because we're very used to thinking of the Lamb of God as a sacrifice of atonement, that somehow or other, as the Lamb is killed, the sins are dealt with. And we're so used to that idea if we've been in church for a while that it's almost impossible for us to think of something else. But lambs were not part of the atonement offerings. The atonement offerings were goats and bulls, not lambs. In fact, lambs were part of Passover. Remember the story from Exodus 12 when the Passover came, they had to sacrifice the lamb without blemish and then paint the, the blood on the lintels. And as the, as the, the angel of death came over, the, the, over Egypt, he would pass over, hence the name Passover, the houses that had the blood on the lintels. You see, Passover was not about dealing with sin. It was about judgment. And your household would be passed over in judgment and not visited by the angel of death when the blood of the lamb was on your doorposts. You see, John actually wasn't expecting a dying lamb who would somehow or other die and, and take away the sin of the world. What he, in that, because of that, though he does say, this is the one who will take away the sin of the world. What he's expecting is the Passover lamb who's heralding God's judgment on the world. And it meant that God would not pass judgment on his people, on his true people. And so what John is doing here is he's preparing the path. 
He's getting the people ready to receive their lamb, their Messiah. And his disciples listened and were prepared. So when John said, behold, look, they looked. And what did they do? Verse 37, they followed. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. If they knew nothing else, what these two disciples knew is that they should follow this one. But perhaps that was about all they knew. Because, see what happens next, verse 38. We're up to point three, the brothers on my outline now. Verse 38, turning around, Jesus saw them following and asks, what do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So these two of John's disciples understood that they needed to follow Jesus. But after that, they were a bit lost. They get asked, Jesus says, what do you want? Now, they could have said all sorts of things, couldn't they? They could have said, oh, John told us to follow you. They could have said, we, we understand you're the Messiah. Jesus told, no, no, what he says is, um, uh, where are you staying? You, you can almost feel the blurting out the, of the uncertainty of what's going on. I, I really don't know what to make of all of this. Now, as a, as a question, how does that advance anything? Jesus saw them following, but what did they want? Well, I suspect they didn't really even know. But did you see that they actually did call him rabbi? Now, John explicitly translates this word for us. Rabbi is a Hebrew word which means great one or my teacher, something like that. So they acknowledge that he's worthy to teach them, that he's worthy to be followed. And Jesus then invites them to come, to see, to go with him, to follow him. That's the invitation. And these two, Andrew, St Andrew up there in our wonderful picture in the middle of the stained glass window. Of course, he didn't look like that, but that's another story. Uh, And someone else, very likely the Apostle John himself, because he's not named, goes with Jesus and spends the rest of the day with him. Then Andrew goes for his brother, verse 41. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we found the Messiah, that is the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. You see, it was important to Andrew that the one that John the Baptist had sent them was none other than the Messiah. And John takes time to translate this word for us as well. Messiah, should come up on the screen, Messiah is a Hebrew word which means anointed one or king, something like that. And it translates into Greek as Christ. So John wants us to understand this word because Christ was a familiar word in Greek and Messiah is from that really strange language, Hebrew. So that actually might give you some idea of the intended audience of this gospel account. Perhaps it's more broad than just the native Hebrew and Aramaic speakers of Israel, but to the non-Jews as well. Because as we saw earlier, John had that aim in mind. Verse 12, to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Everyone. 
Those outside national Israel, those outside the covenant of Abraham, the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah, was for them too now. And so he translates it for the non-Hebrew speaker. So Andrew brings Simon to meet Jesus because he's found the Messiah, the Christ, this, this promised king. And given the role that we know, many of us know because of church history and what we've read in the Bible, the role that Peter plays in the future church, what Andrew has done is pretty important. But think about it for a moment. The great apostle Peter, humanly speaking, would not have come to Jesus if Andrew hadn't gone and got him. And over and over in the Christian church, this has happened. Behind every great Christian leader, if you look hard enough, you will find someone who's less important, of course not at all, but someone who's not as visible perhaps, who's instrumental in them being introduced to Jesus. Our own Archbishop tells his story like this. I had a conversation with a Christian friend during which he told me that being a Christian meant he'd given control of his life to Jesus. It was an answer that surprised me, to say the least. He offered me Mark's Gospel and John's Gospel to read, and I accepted. The Lord saved me as I read John's Gospel some weeks later. You see, an anonymous Christian friend and a passing conversation. Now, there's an encouragement for us. While most of us do not become Peters or Kanishkas, Sometimes we can have conversations or, or give the gift of a gospel or, and see God work in people to bring them to Christ. And who knows if God will not use them to do great things in his service. Someone shared their faith with Billy Graham. So many people come to Christ through the faithfulness of SRE teachers week after week, week teaching little children about God. And so Andrew is this encouragement to keep inviting, to keep introducing people to Jesus. And then there's Peter, verse 42. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Kephas, which when translated is Peter. And see again the translation for those of us who are not Aramaic speakers. Kephas means rock, which in Greek is Petros or Peter. And knowing what we know, it doesn't surprise us, does it? We know Peter, salt of the earth, solid as a rock, unless all you read is the Gospels. In which case, what you see is that Peter's not very like a rock at all. He's up and down, he's like a yo-yo all over the place. He might be very, very right, but he also gets things very, very wrong. And as we go through John's Gospel, we'll see that over and over again. He's an interesting character. Peter doesn't make the Gospel dull, that's for sure. He suffers from foot-in-mouth disease. He suffers from speak-before-you-think disease and so much else. And he was just as likely to be wrong as he was to be right in the Gospel accounts. But Jesus looked at him and said, you will be called rock. And that's because I think Jesus was seeing not so much as he was then, but as he would become under God's grace. 
He's the one to whom the others in the early church can look for a lead and will not be disappointed. He's the one who stands firm and goes right on with whatever work it is that God has given him to do. And not that he gets everything right all the time, but he is the rock that they look towards. Andrew is encouraging us for all who are not Peter's, which is a lot of us. But we're also encouraged by Peter because Christ looks at us and sees us not simply as we are, though he does see that, but what we might become in God's grace. And in Peter and Andrew, we see the beginning of God's great plan of all who believe being able to become children of God. Remember verse 12? And it's not just the king who can be a child of God. It's not just the priests who are a child of God, but even a Galilean fisherman like Andrew or Peter. But if we're encouraged by Andrew and Simon this way, Peter, then what about the next two? Philip and Nathaniel. Verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Now, it's, it's important to see that Jesus found Philip. Andrew and Simon and um, Andrew and the other apostle, probably John, they found Jesus. But Jesus goes to find Philip. Philip takes no initiative in this matter. It's a bit different to the earlier ones. So Jesus is receiving people who come to him in faith, like Andrew and John. He invites them to continue to follow him. But Jesus went out after Philip and found him. Now, there's a lot of discussion about the character of Philip. I'm not going to go into a lot of it, but perhaps Philip isn't quite as quick as the others. Not as quick at picking up the signals of what's going on. Or perhaps he just doesn't get it in the same way as Andrew and Simon and perhaps John did. But he does realise that he's found something special. Look, verse 45. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anything could come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. That's interesting. When, when Nathaniel challenges Peter, uh, no, Philip, he doesn't have a discussion. He doesn't bring out the arguments. He doesn't, you know, I've, I've concocted all these reasons why, Nathaniel, you should believe that he is the Christ, he is the Messiah. No, he doesn't try and convince. He's being convinced himself, but it seems like he doesn't know how to convince Nathaniel. So what he says is, come and see which actually is probably the best suggestion he could have made. And that's very helpful for us who aren't quite as quick-witted or as good at argumentation or who forget what to say under pressure, and so many of us are like that. When people don't believe, invite them to come and see. The great Sydney evangelist, John Chapman, that some of us will remember, once told me, that the very best way to introduce people to the gospel of Christ was not to argue, but to invite them to meet Jesus by reading a gospel of Christ. 
just like Archbishop Raphael did. We all have the greatest gospel tool at our fingertips, the gospel itself. Remember what John wrote? God inspired him to write, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So Philip isn't a great man like Peter. You hardly hear about Philip again. He's not Philip the Evangelist, we think, in, in Acts. He's, he's just sort of, he comes up again in John 14, a couple of other places, but he's very ordinary and perhaps always a little bit out of his depth. But the amazing thing is that this man, this ordinary man, the man who does not go on to become a great man like Peter, he was one of the 12. Peter, Philip, Andrew, John, Matthew, Thomas, Judas. I am really tempted at this moment to see how many of the rest of the apostles you can name. But I know that if you'd ask me, I'd fail, so I'm not going to ask you. That's all right. But what sort of people were the 12? Why is it hard to remember who all the 12 are? Well, I think they're hard to remember because many of them are not memorable. Pretty simple, really. They didn't leave any remarkable achievements behind them, though later on in the church people did make up legends about them, but the legends didn't really stick. Now, there were definitely the great ones like Peter and John, amazing men, but there were the others like Philip. And when it comes to choosing the 12, you know, I don't think Jesus sat down on the side of Lake Galilee and thought, now, who are the 12 most impressive people in all of Israel that I can go and choose to follow me? No, I think what he's got in the 12 is actually a cross-section of people, just, just like the church is. The church has always had people of great talents with great gifts, but most of us are very ordinary people. Yes, we're extraordinary because God loves us, but ordinary in nearly every other respect. I read this week the thing about being an average Christian is that, well, you're average. It sort of goes with the, the territory. But if you think about it, it wouldn't be greatly to God's credit if all he did was take outstanding people to do great things. It happens all the time, doesn't it? Rather, it's when he takes ordinary people like Philip, like me, like you, and through us displays his greatness. Well, that's really something. That's the power of God. That's the work of the Spirit. God is not dependent on human greatness. And so God can take Philip with all his limitations and bring him into the 12 as one who was meant to be there. I'm not saying he wasn't supposed to be there. He was meant to be there. But Philip couldn't find Jesus. If Jesus wanted him, he had to go and get him. And he did. Follow me. Now, Philip might have been a little out of his depth, but he knew what to do when he found Jesus. He went and found Nathanael. Now, as far as we know, he's not one of the 12. Some people think Nathaniel might be the apostle mentioned in one of the other Gospels called Bartholomew, but we have no evidence that that's true. Verse 45, Philip found Nathaniel and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, 
Jesus of of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Now, it sounds like Philip and Nathanael had been talking about it, having been discussions about these prophecies. And now Philip can say, we found the one we've been talking about. But all we know about Nathanael really is in these verses in front of us, plus one verse in John chapter 21. And his initial reaction is that he's not impressed. Verse 46, Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Now, here's my map. As far as we know, there wasn't anything specially bad about Nazareth. But we know from chapter 21, verse 2, that Nathanael was from Cana. Now, Cana is not that far from Nazareth. It's about 10K. And it may be that there was just some intertown rivalry. You know how your town is always better. I know Summerhill is always better than Ashfield if you live in Summerhill. And if you live in Ashfield, it's the other way around. That's the way it is. I grew up in Blacktown. I know, it's surprising, isn't it? I don't have any scars. Um, well, I grew up in Blacktown. Next door, the very next suburb west, was Doonside. And we looked down on Doonside as being one of the, you know, we, we used to say the only way out of Doonside is up. Right? Interestingly enough, as I was thinking about it this week, I actually looked at the, uh, the elevations. And Blacktown elevation is about 40 metres. Doonside's elevation is 120 metres. So all my life I've been living under this misapprehension. Uh, So we used to look down on on Nazareth, on on Doonside, and Doonside used to look down on us. It's what you do to the town next door. But certainly we do know that Nazareth does not have a place in the prophecies about the Messiah in the Old Testament. So Nathaniel reacts with disbelief. Philip says, though, come and see. And Jesus welcomes him in a very unusual way. Did you notice that, verse 47? When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, here is truly an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Now, I don't think Jesus here is saying Nathanael is sinless. It's just that he's straightforward. He's not wearing a facade. And Nathanael's response shows it's true. There's no false humility. It's just straightforward back in Jesus' face. He says, how do you know? How do you know? Jesus replied, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Now, we don't know anything more about it than that. But it does seem that Jesus had some supernatural knowledge of Nathanael before meeting him. And it was this knowledge combined with what Philip had told him that did something remarkable. Verse 49. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. His disbelief turns to acceptance. A moment ago, he didn't call him Rabbi. Now he calls him Rabbi. And now he's saying, you are the Son of God, the, the King of Israel. It's basically saying the same thing two different ways. It's like saying Steve is our rector, our senior minister. Same thing, just slightly different title. Nathaniel has come a long way and in doing so becomes the first in John's Gospel to explicitly believe. Verse 50, Jesus said, You believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You will see greater things than that. So you see, here, the aim of John is unfolding in front of us. 
that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. And Nathanael is the first to explicitly acknowledge that as well. Then Jesus takes it one step further to even greater things. Verse 51. He then added, Very truly, I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man, which refers back to what Cancy read for us from Genesis 28 with Jacob's ladder and the angels of heaven coming up and down on the ladder. That's a very old, bad, the only picture I could find of it that made any sense at all. But here Jesus says, yes, here are the angels ascending and descending, but do you see what they're ascending on and descending on in John's Gospel? They're ascending and descending on the Son of Man. See, heaven is opened not by a ladder, but by Jesus, by the Son of Man himself. In Jesus himself, the gates of heaven are opened and all who believe may go in. So it brings us to the great purpose of John. Remember that throughout John, he's trying to show us that Jesus is the Christ. Over the coming months, as we look at John, the constant question in the background is, is Jesus the Messiah? Is Jesus the one promised? Is Jesus God's son? Is he worth believing in? And so we'll be looking at what he says and what he does and and what those things mean. And he'll do these things called signs, which are supposed to point us to who he is. And next week, we'll look at the first of Jesus' signs in the town of Cana. Signs of who he is, signs of his identity as Christ, the King of Israel and the special Son of God. But the big change, the earth-shattering change, is that now being a child of God doesn't depend on being a child of Abraham, but is open to whoever believes. In the Gospel today, we saw the fisherman. We saw the average bloke. And we saw the sceptic, Nathaniel, all come to believe. Because that's what happens when you come face to face with Jesus. All this is written so that you will believe that Jesus is the Christ. And so the challenge to us who already believe is this. Do you think that God will convince people that Jesus is the Christ by reading John's Gospel? Why not, if you don't? So the challenge I want to put before you is, why don't you invite a friend to read John? To read John with you, perhaps, but just to read John. And let John do the work. Let God do the work through John. Don't think you need to have all the answers, because just like Philip, all you need to do is invite them to meet Jesus. Invite friends to come to church for John's Gospel, to listen to the podcasts, listen to the YouTube videos. Trust that God knows what he's doing. But if you don't yet believe, the challenge is keep reading. Because all of this is meant by God to help you understand, to convince you, 
to bring you to who Jesus is and that by believing in him, you might have life in his name. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for these people, for Andrew and his companion, for Peter, for Philip, for Nathaniel. We thank you that they came to know the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for what we can learn from those early encounters. We have come to you. We've come to know our Saviour, though we have so many imperfections and so many weaknesses and so many failures, by meeting Jesus. We thank you that you welcome ordinary people and transform them. We pray that we may be encouraged from those that we've been thinking of today and that strong in the strength that you supply, we may go forward to do your will and that we may be found faithful in our day and in our generation, even as they were faithful in theirs. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. And we're going to continue in song. We're going to sing a a song about that moment when John the Baptist sees Jesus and cries out, Behold, the Lamb of God.